everybody. Welcome back to Fabulous. Hi, friends. I'm Shannon Payne. And I'm Elizabeth Taylor. And this week, we're talking about friends. Not the TV show, but no. the thing that's the best thing that's ever happened to you, those friends. Those friends. I'm a huge fan of friends. Same. They're the best. They're so good. I don't know who came up with it when they were like, hey, I you. like you. The things about you. Be by me and yeah. we'll do them too. Like, yeah. what a good idea. Right? <laughs> it's genius. Was it weird at first? Maybe a little. Uh-huh. This guy just hangs around me all the time. What is this? Guess your friends. I guess that's how that works. <laughs> it's so good. It's very good. This time we're going to be talking about famous ones, though. Mm-hmm. So someday we'll be in their uh, whatever, in their squad, the famous friends squad. Oh, sure. Wouldn't that be <laughs> someday. cool? Someday. We'll be on a list of 15 BuzzFeed things. Uh-huh. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> the top 10 friend groups you wish you were a part of. Oh, that feels mm. really real. It does. <laughs> oh, my gosh. In all of this friends reading research, I was I came across a a thing talking about why maybe maybe why Leonardo DiCaprio dates such young women. Okay. And it was talking about like these other women explaining that he makes a lot of fart jokes. He's just a young guy in his right. brain. And Kate Winslet still laughs at them. She thinks they're funny. Mm. But most of the other women that he's broken up with have like aged out of it and they uh, don't laugh anymore. That makes sense. So he has to date girls who are like, you're rich enough that that's funny. It's, it's fine. It's totally fine. Can you imagine if it's all because of fart jokes? It could be it. <laughs> That's amazing. You never do know about people. <laughs> it's true. I'd still be fine with it, but like, I get it. I guess I understand. I wonder if that's why they didn't give him the Academy Award. Maybe. They're like, too many fart jokes. We can't have great, this. But he makes me feel uncomfortable. I'm like, is he going jokes. to say one during the award ceremony? This is a dignified thing. This is the biggest one we do. Right? This is a huge risk. <laughs> it could be it. It all makes sense now. He has to cross his heart. No fart jokes. <laughs> Cross his heart, no fart. (laughs) And he he finally gave in with that last one, and it was like, fine. I won't. It would be weird to fart during the bear one anyways. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) So great. Oh, that's amazing. (laughs) Oh, God. This is a, I'm excited. This one's, we're going to do a two-part episode. Yeah, because we had a bunch of groups of friends we liked. It just sounded fun. So Mm -hmm. this week I'm doing the Rat Pack. And I'm doing Oprah and Gail. Which is so good. (laughs) They're so great. And then you have to tune in next week. We're not going to ruin it and spoil it for you yet. But it is maybe two of the best friendships ever, ever. Just ever. I mean, the epitome of friend goals. Truly. And just a a full vibe. Absolutely. They are. They are an emotion. They are. They are a thing. Absolutely. If somebody said it's just like this, you'd be like, oh, I know exactly what that is. That's that's how iconic they are. Mm -hmm. It's going to be great. Truly. Well, let's not overshadow how cool these groups are. These groups are also amazing and I'm very excited. And Mm -hmm. I'm also it's National Sangria Day. We got to celebrate. We have have sangria. I was going to say shangria and that is a thing. So look on my personal Instagram during the summer <laughs> to and see a lot see of Shangri-La Sunday. <laughs> Do we want to get started? I can't wait. Oh my God. Friends. Okay. The Rat Pack. <laughs> We're doing this. It's <laughs> epic. It's so good. I cut down a lot of stuff because this is, I feel like there's just so many things out there where there's so much information. And every individual had a big life. Truly. Well, in this one, it's like, 
here's maybe how this worked. And then maybe it was this other way. And then maybe it was this other way. So there's so much like different versions of the same thing. Mm -hmm. So it was navigating that this week. It was like Groundhog's Day, the episode. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) That's kind of what it felt like. (laughs) Oh, goodness. So what we're going to jump into right now, I have different subcategories and I'll tell you the titles of each one because (laughs) I feel like that just like carries the narrative here. So our first category, Humphrey Bogart Beginnings. Ooh. Yes. He seems so surly. He does. <laughs> so, like, so many great things. The beginning of this story, actually, just might owe everything to a woman. Of course it does. Of course it does. Not saying that Humphrey Bogart's a woman. He's not. Promise me. I, I, I mean, I promise you. I know this. <laughs> I've had sangria. <laughs> Okay, so the original group started out a little differently than the crew we all think of. So before Frank Sinatra's beautiful blue eyes looked out as the leader of the group, Humphrey Bogie Bogart sat at the helm. I know. (laughs) Back in the late 1940s and early 50s, the group would spend most of their time together hanging out at the home of Humphrey and his wife Lauren Bacall in their California home in Holmby Hills. According to one of the iterations of the origin story, the group originally included Humphrey, Frank, Mickey Rooney, Nat King Cole, and Errol Flynn. And they were named the Holmby Hills Rat Pack, or Rat Pack for short. (laughs) But the group didn't start out or even really stay exclusive. So in 1955, another origin story goes, and this one's the best one, (laughs) that Humphrey, Lauren, Frank, Judy Garland, her husband Sidney Luft, David Niven, and if, is that how you say his name? I just questioned my whole situation. Feels, I feel good about it. Sure, thank you. <laughs> and a few others took a friend's trip to Vegas and they partied hard. I knew it was Vegas. For five days. <laughs> no. Yes. They could be in the hospital. They should probably have been in the hospital. <laughs> they were a mess. By the end of the fifth day, the group was like quite literally a straight up mess. I don't think you can go to Vegas for five days. I think that's illegal. I think it should be. Three nights max. Absolutely. It's the law. It's too much. <laughs> Lack of sleep, perpetually in a drunk or hungover mix. <laughs> They looked like death. <laughs> but they smelled <laughs> so bad. <laughs> fucking terrible. <laughs> and Lauren called them out on it, telling the gang, you look like a goddamn rack pa- rat pack. <gasps> Perfect. I know. <sighs> Which is why this is the better story, and I'm just saying it's the truth. Mm-hmm, that's Absolutely. It. <laughs> the rat pack became official when the group made it back home to California. So they sat in the restaurant Romanoff's, and the owner was part of the drunken delegation in Vegas as well. <laughs> With roles being doled out as follows. And this is just a, a small sampling of roles. <laughs> Frank Sinatra was president. Lauren Bacall was den mother. Humphrey Bogart was director of public relations. Uh oh. Uh-huh. Judy Garland was vice president. <laughs> and Sydney Left was acting cage manager. Uh oh. <laughs> it's so good. Is that a job from the circus? It might be. I don't know. <laughs> Homework. So every official group has to have a purpose. And Lauren detailed the mission statement of the group to a reporter as follows. To drink a lot of bourbon and stay up late. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) I love it. Same. Simple. Easy. Woman after my own heart. (laughs) It's also said that they had a coat of arms, which was a rat chewing on a human hand. (laughs) (laughs) And on top of all of this, they also had a motto. Never rat on a rat. Perfect. I love it. (laughs) 
I'm imagining them bringing Jody, Judy Garland home from Vegas, like thrown over someone's shoulder, fireman style. Oh, 100%. <laughs> that absolutely she's happened. she's partying the hardest. Guaranteed. <laughs> Guaranteed. Perfect. I love it so much. <laughs> The change to the PAC membership that became the historic icon started not too long after the fateful Vegas trip. See, Humphrey was already not doing too hot in the health department. Heavy smoking and drinking over the years wreaked absolute havoc on his esophagus. Yeah. Yeah. And so by 1965, Lauren had convinced him it was time to see a doctor and the news wasn't great. It was esophageal cancer. (sighs) Over the next year, he would battle with surgery and chemo, but by January 14th, 1957, he had passed away. On his last day, Frank, Catherine Hepburn, and Spencer Tracy were with him. Catherine Hepburn describes their last interaction. Spence patted him on the shoulder and said, Good night, Bogey. Bogey turned his eyes to Spence very quietly and with a sweet smile covered Spence's hand with his own and said, Goodbye, Spence. Spence's heart stood still. He understood. Oh, I know. So that was the end of the Humphrey Bogart scene. And we are now into the takeover of Frank Sinatra. And did he ever? Oh, buddy. <laughs> it, it definitely doesn't take long for the reign of Frank to begin. The same year, 1957, Frank and Lauren are engaged to be married. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> While they've been living in the homes that Lauren and Humphrey had shared. I thought you were taking over the rat pack, not Humphrey's literal life. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> it had actually been pretty much assumed that Humphrey was a bit jealous of Frank for years. And Lauren actually knew that that was the case, too. According to her, the jealousy spawned, quote, partly because he knew I loved being with him, partly because he thought Frank was in love with me. Mm. The likelihood that their affair started before, before, not before, before Humphrey's death is pretty likely. But it's not that Bogey was faithful in the marriage either. He supposedly had an ongoing affair with a woman who had been his secretary for over 17 years. Bar. I know. (laughs) Frank, shock of shocks. Wasn't going to be sticking to this commitment for long. No, no, he would not. So one night, they're celebrating the engagement at a restaurant on Sunset Boulevard, Frank telling her to sign autographs as Betty Sinatra. Uh. The next day, (laughs) Lauren is telling reporters about the impending nuptials. When he sees the headlines, Frank is pissed. She calls him and he absolutely refuses to answer. Won't say a word. Won't even pick up the phone. Nothing. You started it, buddy. Right? (laughs) Days later, he calls her, chewing her out because he's positively hounded by the press. And that was the last time the two talked for six years. Oh, my gosh. Frank said of all of this, marriage? What for? Just so I'd have to go home earlier every night? Nuts. <laughs> okay. She just gave your group a name. That's fine. Right. She's just, you know, the big the big one who gave all of you just a reason to be. <laughs> it's fine. It's okay. So by now, Frank is head rat and the makeup of the group has changed quite a bit. Most of the original group has moved on. People rotated in and out of the group over the years, but ultimately, core members of the group now include Frank, Peter Lawford, Joey Bishop, Sammy Davis Jr., and Dean Martin. Sammy and Dean. Sammy and Dean. Which takes us to Ocean's Eleven. (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh my goodness. The Rat Pack's iconic five was truly solidified when the group worked together in 1960 on the original Ocean's Eleven. The story has it that Peter Lawford heard the idea for the Vegas casino heist from a Hollywood director named Victor K. Basically, K was like, hey, listen to this rat idea I heard from a guy at a gas station I stopped at. <laughs> <laughs> it's about this guy named Danny Ocean, and he and all his war pals are going to make it big. Five casinos. They're going to rob five casinos in one night. Fucking cool, right? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Peter agreed. It was, in fact, fucking cool. Yeah. <laughs> Peter got and acquired the rights for the story in 1958. Frank heard the idea and said, forget the movie. Let's pull the job. <laughs> <laughs> Typical Frank. Typical Frank. So was the Rat Pack making up the leading roles initially in the plan? Maybe not. So supposedly Peter envisioned the role of Danny Ocean going to William Holden. Oh. Yeah. But once Frank Sinatra's on board, do you really go with anyone else? I guess not. not. I mean, I don't think he'd like it. (laughs) No, and he's kind of the leader of your group, so Mm -hmm. you do what he says. So here's how the rest fell into place. So Dean Martin was Sam Harmon, the entertainer in the lounge of one of the targeted hotels. Sammy Davis Jr. as Josh Howard, a sanitation worker that manages to take on jobs at every single one of the hotels. Peter Lawford as Jimmy Foster, the original partner in crime and additional mastermind to the whole affair. Brad Pitt. Absolutely. He is Brad Pitt. He's absolutely Brad Pitt. And Joey Bishop as Mushy (laughs) O'Connors. It all just worked out. Billy Wilder, a famous Hollywood director, took on the role of writer for this film, a role he took on kind of as more than a favor to Frank than anything else. Okay. Yeah. And the favor wasn't nothing. The entire film ended up being over two hours long, and changes were said to be made on the fly. Oh, no. Yeah, with Frank literally ripping out pages of the script the day they were set to film. And on top of that, right? On top of that, the Rat Pack are all ad-libbing their lines pretty much regularly the entire time. That's so how of, they filmed this new one, but I think that was on purpose, I so think that it was wasn't intended. as painful. Yeah, <laughs> this one, everything's painstakingly written out, and they're like, no, I've got a better one. Uh, <laughs> cool, that changes the whole story. Let me just get right back oh, to you. Let me, I'm going to go back writing. It's fine. Why am it's, I even here? That's right. <laughs> you can let me go. It's fine. <laughs> I won't be hurt. As a thank you for his kindness, Frank gives Billy a sketch by Pablo Picasso. Oh, which, casually. That and getting paid, I would probably be okay with everything in spite of all of the antics and fuckery on set. That that would maybe be worth it to me. Yeah, yeah. I could see it. And the fuckery, Liz, the fuckery was flowing on set. <laughs> what was the that? fuckery was all over the place. The movie was filmed on location in Las Vegas. Oh, no. Big uh-huh. mistake. And the guys were taking advantage of that big time. <laughs> Really, it was more like they were prioritizing their Vegas party time than their Vegas filming time. <laughs> so Joey Bishop was really like the lone guy that actually showed up at the regular 9 a.m. scheduled filming time. Peter would only film in the morning and Sammy only showed up in the afternoons. <laughs> <laughs> what did they do? I know. Frank was notorious. He would show up three o'clock in the afternoon, film for half an hour and then start drinking. Frank. I know. Your liver will not thank you. Absolutely not. Oh, man. So he gets there at three. And apparently all of them decided that once it hit 5 p.m., they were done. (laughs) That's the end of the day. That's the end of the day, friends. Thank you. Most of the cast was working in a show at the Sands at the time. And once things were done and they were 
performing there. They would they would perform. They would do their show, and then they partied into the late night, early hours of the morning. How did they ever get anything filmed? I don't know. It's shocking, That's really. Nuts. Needless to say, some mornings it took a lot of makeup to get them uh, <laughs> in a good place again. <laughs> the movie itself got mixed reviews, and I honestly can't say that it was undeserved. Have you seen that one? I have. Is it bad? It's it's not necessarily bad. There are some things that I'm not fond of, one of which mm. I'll talk about. Okay. So some people were upset that it glorified theft, which whatever. It's a movie, seriously. (laughs) Others, and I'm solidly in this camp, did not enjoy the sexism. One of the characters said he was going to use the money he made from the heist to get into politics and take away women's right to vote. What? Yeah. That's like a a line someone wrote down. Yeah. That's fine. That's fine. Yeah. Here is a particularly scathing review that the movie got, and it is from Variety. Frequently, one resident wisecrack away from turning into a musical comedy, laboring under the handicaps of a contrived script, an uncertain approach and personalities in essence playing themselves. The Lewis Milestone production never quite makes its point, but romps merrily along, unconcerned that it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh. In the end, though, the movie cost around $2.5 million to make, but it raked in over $12 million just in the U.S. Because of star power. Of course. That works out every single time. Mm-hmm. It landed itself on the, in the rank of 14th highest grossing movie for the year of 1960. Oh. And Frank himself made $700,000 for being in the movie. Or that would be $6 million in today's inflated money. So, money does, that doesn't make any sense. Money's that, weird. That makes no sense. Right? Whatever. <laughs> it's fine. It doesn't I'm, mean anything. <laughs> All right. The rats take over Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that it's important to remember at this point, Vegas was a pretty different place than what we know it to be today. Today it's lights everywhere, buildings everywhere. It's big, it's loud, it's bright, it's wild. But when the Rat Pack entered the scene, it was essentially the Wild West with some nice hotels and a few casinos. Mm-hmm. Gambling had only become legal in 1931, and Vegas was trying to figure out the whole situation. And it was, it's Vegas. And if you haven't been there before, it shouldn't be a place where people live. It's in the middle mm, of nothing. Yeah. So I'm sure all, the establishing a city there was just complicated. I can't even imagine. I don't even, even to this day, I'm like, how did that work out? But right. I guess it was, it was the only gambling place you could go to. Right. So, of course, people are going to flock there. It's it's the lone place. Mm-hmm. And I think that the dam was built in, during the Depression. Yeah. So it took it a minute to get up on its feet. But even so, like moving sidewalks and, right? and malls and stuff, yeah. it wasn't really a thing. No. So what, what would they put there? Before they had come up with those inventions. Right. So it just looked like nice hotels on a street. Yeah. That's all. That's what it was. <laughs> That's exactly what it was. It was a little little dark outside. Exactly. <laughs> it's a situation. At the time, it was also it, like everything was in this post-World War II boom. And combine that with mafia money. Hell yeah. <laughs> and uh, Vegas was on the brink of something. Mm-hmm. The guys are entering the strip just as things are starting to build up. So it's really no wonder that they were taken with it. It was the start of something big and they were part of it in a really big way. 
Well, there is something magic. It's like grown up Disneyland. It super is. It feels like it feels literally like what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas because mm-hmm. it's not a real place. It's not real. It feels like you're doing pretend grown up life. Exactly. And you can be as ridiculous as you need to be. Absolutely. Because it's not it's not part of life. No. <laughs> it's Vegas. It's a whole separate situation. One hundred percent. Perfect. Absolutely. Oh, my goodness. <clears throat> Frank had his first performance in Vegas at the Desert Inn in September 1951, and things really just continued to take off from there. By 1954, major performance headliners are showing up on the strip, and over 8 million people are coming to see them. Amazing. Which is wild. Mm -hmm. But anyone who knew anything knew that it was the Sands Hotel, now the Venetian, where shit was really going down. (laughs) It was the seventh resort to open up on the Vegas Strip, and it was the place to go. After Oceans, people were drawn to Vegas like never before, and the Copa Room at the Sands was the true stomping ground of the Rat Pack. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to call out right now. The iconic five Rat Pack never actually called themselves the Rat Pack. <laughs> the ones from the picture from the Copa Room mm-hmm. at the Sands. Frank hated the name. Because of the whole backstory, I imagine. I am assuming that's the case, but he uh, he did not like it, so he <laughs> never used it himself. Oh, okay, okay. So we're in the Copa, and on every give, like any given night, there was a strong chance that either Frank, Dean, or Sammy would be headlining. But the fun part was you didn't know which Rat Pack member or members were going to be joining in unannounced on the performance. They were just going to show up. Friends. That's, exactly. That's great. It's amazing. <laughs> they would just jump on stage unannounced, add an air of excitement to the whole thing. And it was just great. You were there to see Frank, but you got a whole, like, five other different shows on top of it. And you feel like you're friends with them. Exactly. I like that a lot. It was amazing. But it, it wasn't just the five of them. So many other stars of the time were invited up on stage during the guys' performances. People like Marilyn Monroe and Shirley MacLaine. Like, wow. They were all brought up on stage. According to Shirley, reminiscing about the whole affair in 2017, oh, the Rat Pack. I'll never forget all the fun we had. They used to drag me up on stage, but there wasn't any dragging. I loved it. We'd <laughs> make jokes and the crowd ate it up. The Rat Pack taught me so many things about comedy and live performing. Oh, wow. Right? That's pretty cool. Yeah. It wasn't just their shows that had people gravitating towards Vegas. They partied. (laughs) They brought everyone in on the party with them. As with many in the limelight, they also created their fair share for drama. So Frank sometimes was the biggest instigator. That feels true. (laughs) (laughs) And apparently a hater of mushrooms in his food. Oh, really? George Levin, yeah, the maitre d' of the Copa Room, remembers one night in particular. Everything was silver at that time. Silver plates, silver toppings, coverings. Frank lifts the thing up, and there are mushrooms. He took the bowl and threw it over his head. I stepped to the side and started to laugh. Frank gets up, and he starts coming after me, and I run into the kitchen. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) He comes after me into the kitchen, and he says to me, you want to fight? I said, I'm not a fighter. I'm a lover. Dude, no. (laughs) No. (laughs) And he broke up hugging. He broke up. He hugged me. And that was it. (laughs) You want to fight? You want to fight over fucking mushrooms? mushrooms, You can just pull them off. (laughs) I think it's fine. I think it's okay. 
Oh my, shows what you know. <sighs> it's true. I know nothing. Frank also brought the drama in important and impactful ways as well. So here I am to remind you once again that the US of A has some problematic elements of just all aspects of its ongoing history. <laughs> the 60s were absolutely not exempt from this. Of particular note in this story, segregation is still in full swing. Mm-hmm. Sammy Davis Jr. wasn't exempt from this. Frank fought time and again for as much fair treatment as he could get for his friend. When Sam was denied entrance into the Copacabana, Frank told them that they could fuck right off. <laughs> there were times when hotels would try to ban Sam from staying on their premises, even though he was performing that night. Mm. Frank threatened to cancel the notorious Summit at the Sand Show performance if Sam was denied a room, which was a big deal. The Summit was bringing in tons of money. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just Sam that Frank fought for. One night, Frank saw longtime friend Nat King Cole eating his dinner up in his dressing room because he wasn't allowed to eat in the main dining room. Frank thought this was sheer and utter bullshit and invited his friend to have dinner with him. When the staff objected, Frank told management that if African-Americans were not allowed to eat in the dining room, he would have the entire wait staff fired. Good for Frank. Yeah, there you go. Absolutely good for Frank. I'm sure he was an asshole about it, too. Oh, guaranteed he was an asshole about it. <laughs> There's no question in my mind. I almost did um, Marilyn Monroe and Ella Fitzgerald Ooh. because they did have a friendship. Yeah. Um, and similar things would happen. She she would be invited to sing at these places, but she couldn't go in the front yeah. door. Or um, she could sing at smaller clubs, but not bigger ones, right. even though other women of color had performed there, but she was also fat. Right. And it was so complicated that Marilyn Monroe would go in and say, if you let her do a show, then I'll come every night for two weeks and I'll bring my famous friends. Mm -hmm. And that kind of opened the door. Yeah. But they weren't best friends. Right. Because um, Ella Fitzgerald was notoriously like not into drugs. Mm -hmm. And, and Marilyn Monroe was. was doing many of the drugs. Yes. So they didn't get very close, but they always cared a lot about each other. Which I love. Yeah. I think that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Marilyn, <laughs> let's talk about Jack's Pack. Jack's Pack? Yes. The Rat Pack had their fair share of famous additions, but one in particular especially stood out in the American 1960s. Notoriously a partier and playboy in his own right, President John F. Kennedy found his way to an honorary membership into the Rat Pack. <laughs> he had the obvious connection of Marilyn Monroe but there was another significant link to the group. Peter Lawford's wife at the time, Patricia, was Jack Kennedy's sister. Oh. Yeah. While the relationships of the Rat Pack members were starting to show some wear and tear, especially between Frank and Peter, Frank saw Peter's benefit when JFK started coming around and just happened to be flirting with the idea of the presidency. <laughs> so he wasn't the he president He wasn't president yet. yet. Okay. But this is, he's actively campaigning now. <laughs> yeah. In the days of the internet, this could never. Absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely fucking not. <laughs> Sean Levy, a man who has written several books on the subject, said they were men cut from the same cloth. They always got what they wanted. There were very few people at this altitude and they saw one another in each other. It was truly a special relationship. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> the testosterone involved. Oh, my God. I would have hated it. Yikes. It would have been a shit show. 
And they were helping each other out since the very beginning in big and small ways. So in 1957, The Manchurian Candidate came out and Frank was all about this book. He was ready to take the story to the big screen, but studios weren't on board with the idea. The, the idea of a presidential assassination wasn't really the happy story they were looking for. No. Jack, in an odd case of irony, no. <laughs> loved the book. Well, it's a good book. And the idea of a movie Shit. just happened to have, again, he loved the idea of a movie, and he just happened to have connections with the board of United Artists, and uh, the movie got made. Oh, my gosh. I know. Oh, my gosh. I know. Jack. I know. <sighs> yeah. Frank was all on board for getting Jack into the White House as well, so we touched on it a Bit before, I think, but not very much. But Vegas was a playing ground for the mafia. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Frank and the gang were very willing playmates. Gambling is, is an excellent way to clean money. 100%. Easy. Helping to get Jack the presidency was only going to help matters. This is another quote from Sean Levy. He says, in Chicago, they used to say vote early and vote often. But it's largely understood that because the Eisenhower administration was starting to crack down on organized crime, Kennedy would loosen up on that in exchange for the mafia delivering Illinois. Feels true. Feels very true. A month after Jack announced his presidency, he happened to be sitting in the audience of a Rat Pack show in the Copa Room. Frank takes a pause between songs, gets a spotlight shown on Jack, and says, I'd like to introduce the next president of the United States, John F. Kennedy. (laughs) This solidified it. Jack was running around with the Rat Pack. Jack was fucking cool. Yeah. Does it? That's the word. You know, know, I'm not like, I don't want to romanticize it. I understand that it's probably a lot different than I imagine it is. Right. But every now and then I think, a life of organized crime... Sounds kind of amazing. It sounds like, I don't know what the word is. People be a little bit afraid of me, but also want to be friends with me. Right. I kind of, I'm not mad. It's not the worst. <laughs> it's not the worst. Also, working for money, that's bullshit. Oh my God. <laughs> that's true though. That's not wrong. That's not wrong at all. Anyways, I'm sure it's a lot worse than I think. I'm sure it's awful. So there's a book called Bottoms Up, The Cocktail Shaken and Stirred, and it's by Joseph Lanza, and he describes the entire vibe of this situation. Oh, wow. The Rat Pack era is renowned not only for bolstering Kennedy's election, but for binding American politics to the entertainment industry. These were the new generation of gentlemen of leisure whose cavalier antics had sparked existential hunger in a world-weary middle class finally convinced that the good life had nothing to do with the afterlife. Oh, thank goodness. I know. <laughs> I'm not sad about that. Wow. I know. <laughs> I know. It is very interesting to think about how we went from like this upper crust of normal people. Right. To famous people doing that for us. Yeah. And now if you meet a person, you as in you, you, not me, I've never met people like this, <laughs> but who is like family rich and not famous. Mm-hmm. I bet that's like, oh, really? Huh. How do people know you got a lot of money? Right. Because I think the people with old money buy the bags where you can't see the, the designer label Absolutely. on them. So really, it could be, they could be anybody. That could be an Avon bag. I don't For know. For sure. <laughs> Who the fuck knows? Because now, like, that, that level of people, those influential, super rich people, famous people. Yeah. Very interesting thing huh. about Yeah. All right. 
Over the coming months of Jack's campaign, the pack was there to help foster his success. They traveled to Florida to play shows in support of Jack. They came to back him up at the Democratic National Convention. But things started to break down when it came time for Inauguration Day. The pack was slated to perform, but see, once again, Sammy is barred from participating because racism. Jack's dad was scared of the backlash that would have ensued if Sammy had been invited to perform, especially due to his recent marriage to an actress named Mae Britt. But Dean Martin bailed on the performance, too. Frank was not stoked about this, and it was the start of a greater rift between the two. Things between Jack and the pack continue to deteriorate when brother Bobby enters the White House scene. He was charming as hell. Oh, my God. If I were Frank Sinatra, I'd be a little intimidated also. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Have a little crush on him. It's fine. Um, While Jack took a light approach to the whole mob situation, (laughs) Bobby had shown himself to be very much the opposite. Oh. Yeah. As attorney general, he was actually cracking down on organized crime and had actually set his sights to take down the mafia itself. Bobby, that's kind of... That's a pretty bold move. Teacher's pet of you, honestly. Maybe. <laughs> could be true. But do your job. I get it. I get it. It's C- fine. Crime is bad. Yeah. <laughs> but the end of a great friendship finds its end in a party invitation. In March 1962, Frank invites Jack to come over and stay with him at his house in Palm Springs. Maybe it was Bobby. Maybe it was Mr. FBI J. Edgar Hoover. Oh. <laughs> but uh, Jack was told, you shouldn't go. <laughs> this isn't a good idea. That's a no. That's a... I'm not going to say no, but I'm going to say no. So don't do this. We don't have a secret service name for right. him. <laughs> it just... It wasn't a good look to run around with a guy who was already being monitored for his mob connection. That's true. And add on top of that, Frank was known to have Chicago mob boss Sam Gian- Giancana over for regular visits and Jack... Our friend Jack just happened to be having secret affairs with this lady friend. Oh, no. So probably not a good idea for him to run into that situation. (laughs) Ultimately, Jack listens and bails on the plans and has his brother-in-law, Peter Lawford, deliver the news. Tell him that the Secret Service says I can't go. I can't go. (laughs) (laughs) It's fine. I'm sorry. Frank had actually had a helipad put in at Palm Springs property as Especially for Jack himself. Oh, wow. So when Peter tells him the bad news, Frank supposedly started smashing up the helipad in a full-on rich man tantrum. Oh, no, Frank. (laughs) On top of this, Frank kicked Peter out of the Rat Pack and replaced him with Bing Crosby in an upcoming role in a movie. Oh, my gosh. Which is just such a wild coincidence. (laughs) Because, uh... Guess where uh, Jack went for a party instead of being Crosby's? <laughs> he wasn't as he wasn't a like a great person, but I think he came off as very family oriented. Mm-hmm. Oh no! Yeah. After, so after all of this drama, the Rat Pack was never the same. While the internet doesn't give a definitive breakup date, it's easy to say the time with Kennedy led to their ultimate demise. That happened to a lot of people. It sure did. Frank and Dean performed together over the years and even starred together with Sam in a movie called Cannon, Cannonball Run 2 in 1984. I'm not sure. I knew there was a Cannonball Run 2. There is. Huh. It happened in 1984. Nice. I have some miscellaneous facts for you. I'm ready. Perfect. We mentioned this before, but the Rat Pack was a revolving door that allowed for the inclusion of a number of visiting members. Some of these include, like we said, Marilyn Monroe, 
Ava Gardner, Elizabeth Taylor. Of course. Of course. Cary Grant and Lucille Ball. Cary Grant. Cary Grant. He was the fanciest of them all. I know. Wow. It's kind of amazing. Kind of a sad one. Dean Martin's son, Dean Paul Martin, died in a plane crash in 1987 on the San Giorgiano Mountain in California. Frank Sinatra's mom, Dolly, was actually killed in a plane crash 10 years earlier on the exact same mountain. Oh, my gosh. Weird. Frank Sinatra once ordered 300 Bloody Marys from room service for a Rat Pack party. That sounds like heartburn. It super does. (laughs) Get mimosas instead. (laughs) And my last one, there is a Rat Pack revival show in Vegas that you can go see today. So it's obviously not the original crew, but if you're feeling a bit nostalgic, it could be worth a check. That sounds fun. Yeah. Cool. That's the Rat Pack in a uh, nutshell. Gotta love them. Right. I think there, I've I've seen a thing on TikTok. There are some uh, clubs or bars in Vegas that have restored themselves to what they were at that time. I think that would be so cool. A way fun experience. I'm going to have to read up the names of older cocktails. Mm -hmm. Because I don't think I'm grown up enough to have a Negroni. (laughs) It's delightful. You'd love it. They're so bitter though. Oh, they're so good. Are they more or less bitter than an old fashioned? Because isn't an Aperol in it that's really Yeah, the Aperol might do it. Mm. I think if you don't like an old-fashioned, maybe you don't like it yet. But you can have an old-fashioned, but I might make a face. (laughs) Don't don't tell Taylor Swift. Here's what you do. You you graduate into it. You put more simple syrup into it than is, like, typically put in there. And then you lower that amount down. I want to do the one that we called the Angela Lansbury. That's delightful. Instead of the simple, you put in the... that shit called um fuck amaretto yeah that's <laughs> how did we not remember that i don't know i love it oh my god it tastes like fancy tea party that's drinks. true though okay you guys that was the rap pack go make a couple friends work on your friendship bracelets yeah come right back and we'll tell you another story okay Yes. I originally was going to talk about something very historical and um, upper crusty. Which sounded so cool. And I'm so disappointed that it's not real that I'm still going to tell you a little bit about it. (laughs) Good. (sighs) Okay. Black is the badge of hell, the hue of dungeons, and the school of night. Shut up. I know. That's amazing. (laughs) That's from um, Love's Labored Lost, which... uh, um, Main, it wasn't talking about like a group of people. It was oh. really talking about this lady <laughs> who had dark hair. But that's not the point. No. So allegedly there was a group in the um, late reign of Elizabeth I um, consisting of Walter, Sir Walter Raleigh, Christopher Marlowe or Kit. Ooh. Uh, George Chapman, Matthew Royden and Thomas Harriet. And I believe Thomas Harriet. No, that's a different guy. It's okay. Like, He's the ninth Earl of something. That's a different man. Um, they were students of science, philosophy, and religion, and suspected atheists. Oh. <laughs> and atheism at the time was was treasonous. Shit. Be- yeah, because the whole, like, the monarch is the head of the church and they're BFFs with God. So if you don't like God, then you don't like the queen. Mm. So it was very dangerous. But it was also, um, atheism was kind of another word for anarchy. Yeah. So just sub- subversive people. Mm-hmm. Which just means people who talked about science at the time. 
Huh. Uh, scholar and fanboy Arthur Ak- Akison. He was the one who actually assigned the group their spooky and sophisticated name. I love it. Um, but it turns out they might not have even known each other. Really? And I found this to be devastating. I, yeah. <laughs> I read this series of books by Deborah Harkness. Um, I think they're called the All Souls series. Okay. Yeah. But in the second one, without sharing spoilers, they go back in time uh-huh. for no whatever reason. <laughs> and one of the characters is actually Matthew Royden. One of the members of the School of Night. So you learn all about these people and (gasps) their secret meanings. And I was like, this is amazing. And I recognize their names, so I know it's real. Right? (laughs) It's not. Oh, my God. But there are several book series and um, a couple. I think there's some movies. There's a play play, um, based around this group of people. (laughs) Well, at least it's kind of real then. (laughs) They were sort of associated. They probably bumped shoulders. I'm sure. Um, One guy and Sir Sir Walter Raleigh were in jail together for a long time in the tower. So... Some of them knew each other, but they probably didn't have a secret nighttime uh, babysitters club. That's which really is a unfortunate. <laughs> but I want to read you this thing from um, a website about Kit Marlowe. It said, in England, Sir Walter Raleigh and the young ninth Earl of Northumberland, Henry Percy, led a group of intellectuals, a select band of advanced thinking noblemen, courtiers, and educated commoners, including mathematicians, astronomers, voyagers who had experienced, or sorry, explored the new world, geographers, philosophers, and poets. They formed an esoteric club nicknamed the School of Night. That's so cool. And I want it to be real. <laughs> Anyways, now you're all dis- just depressed about it with for me. For sure. And I appreciate your support. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Two friends I know for sure did know each other. <gasps> Do know each other. Yes. Here we go. A match made in heaven mm. and also Baltimore. Yes. Between a billionaire business mogul and an Emmy winning journalist who is a member of the Broadcasting and Cable Hall of Fame. Oprah Winfrey and Gail King have been knowing absolutely all of each other's business since 1976. I love it so much. That's so long. It is. It's amazing. incredible. Most people aren't married that long. No, it's true. In 1976, Oprah and Gail were in their early 20s and they were working at the same TV station in Baltimore. Gail was a production assistant at the time and writer, and Oprah was a news anchor at six o'clock. Yes. And if you know a little bit about Oprah's past, you know that she was uh, fired from that job eventually Mm -hmm. because her co-anchor didn't like her. And that's what sort of leads her to Chicago and the Oprah Winfrey show. But at the time, they're working in this job and, and they think that they're in their dream field, right? Right. And Gail stays in broadcasting forever. Yeah. Um, one night, a crazy store, a snowstorm blows through and Gail can't get home safely. So Oprah asks her to come to stay at her house for the night. Huh? And at the time, they even talk about their salaries. <laughs> like, oh, my God. Oprah's making like $22,000 a year. Gail, like twelve. Oh, my like, God. They have different jobs and projection assistants aren't really talking with anchors. Right. Um, but I guess they must have had like secret twin vibes mm-hmm. or something. So she invited her to come stay at her house. 
They stayed up talking all night. And in the morning, Oprah did such an Oprah thing. Yes. <laughs> she had a toothbrush and a dress ready for Gail to wear the next day. Oh. Revealing the most Oprah slash Martha Stewart parts of yourself to a new friend on day two is pretty brave. Truly. But when you know, you know. Oh. <laughs> Gail said about their getting to know each other. For the first time, I met somebody who I felt was like me. Gail and Oprah are both smarty pants, but they didn't grow up the same way. They were always the kind of girls who felt like they didn't quite fit in. So Gail was raised very affluently. She grew up in Turkey for a lot of her childhood where they had a swimming pool and a maid. Um, Oprah did not grow up that way and spent her time between two different cities with the different parts of her family after they were split up. And so she says, like, Gail had a maid. My mom was a maid. So things were different. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is way cool. Oh, my God. So they were they were always the kind of girls who sort of felt like they didn't quite fit in. Yeah. Um, and there's something a little bit different about them. Obviously, we all mm -hmm. see that now. Like, yes. oh, I see why you wouldn't fit in very well in second grade. Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> <laughs> Um, that little thing has made them incredibly successful, shining stars, uh, but it's also tough to be different. Yes. So when they found the other half of their Easter egg, <gasps> when the black girl who loved Barry Manilow found the black girl who loved Neil Diamond. Oh, my God. Everything fell into place. They've been the voices in each other's heads ever since. Good and bad, big and little. They love and respect each other so much. It makes me sick and it also makes me cry. Yes. <laughs> During a special episode of the Oprah Winfrey show, and a lot of, the, like, it's a show, so there's videos. You can watch yeah. them on the internet, which is so wonderful. Amazing. So, a special episode of the Oprah Winfrey show for Oprah's 40th birthday. Famous ass ladies were talking about the great times that they'd had in their 40s. And like, you live your best life in your 40s. And Gladys Knight <gasps> is in the middle of bestowing life wisdom on Oprah <laughs> when she interrupts her to yell out, Gail is here! Oh my God! <laughs> uh, it's like this panel of these beautiful, successful women soulfully spilling out their guts about what it's like to age as a woman. And as soon as Oprah sees her best friend, everything stops i love this they hug and cry a little and then oprah tells everyone about how as all of these amazing women were arriving and performing she kept thinking to herself i wish gail could be here to see this oh my god <laughs> and there she was in the way that best friends always seem to be when we need them oh gail said to oprah during that show i have no song to sing i have no words of wisdom i just wanted to be here with you today Oh, my God. I know. <laughs> when Gail was inducted into the Broadcasting and Cable Hall of Fame, uh -huh. Oprah was the one who presented the award. And um, she said she deserves to be celebrated not just for her news, her news acumen, but for being her consistently joyful, vibrant, best outlook on life, best outlook on everybody self. We're here tonight to celebrate you for continuing to build a legacy in the space of nice. We're here to honor your curiosity. We're here to honor your inquisitive interest in all of humankind. We're here to honor your desire to know the truth. And I don't, I can't imagine, I'm not a journalist myself, but that's got to be like the most amazing compliment Absolutely. ever. Like you look like the kind of person who cares about what's real. Yeah. How amazing. I, I would love to hear that, right? So, so cool. They have the funnest relationship. It's amazing. <laughs> like, they've been close forever and ever. 
through Gail's marriage and divorce. Uh, I don't know how long Oprah's been with Stedman, her partner, but a long time. We've been mm-hmm. hearing his name for a long time. Uh, Gail has kids. Uh, Oprah has a dynasty. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, and they're just, they're just together. They I just love, love each other. Gail has a room in all of Winf- Oprah's houses. With a TV in it. Oprah's not really into a lot of TV, but Gail always wants a TV in her bedroom. (laughs) Just super cute. Uh, So I read this interview. It seemed to be by somebody they both knew really well, like maybe a production assistant or something that they have now. Yeah. And she was like, I was told somebody I was doing this interview today and they asked me again, like, do you think they're together? And Oprah was like, people are still doing that. Oh, my God. And she's like, yeah, every time I talk about you guys, people tell me I'm naive because I don't think you're dating. And they're like, we would tell you. Oh, my God. (laughs) Oprah, She's like, my entire life is is out there. It's right. on film or in a book. Like, if I were gay, you would know. For I, sure. I would, I would tell you. And Gail's like, why wouldn't we say we were? Like, there's nothing wrong with no, being gay. Right? They think it's really interesting. And then they say, but they kind of understand it because there's not, there's not a lot of reference for people for a friendship like theirs. That's true. What they have is so unique and special and, and like a situation of just total respect and admiration and trust and truth. And not everybody can understand that. Yeah. Between two women who aren't romantic partners. It yeah. just blows their minds. So they're like, that's, we wish they'd get over it and just believe us. But also like, yeah, I get it. Not mm-hmm. everybody gets where we are, what we do how this works yeah because it just does (laughs) right (laughs) so this is a conversation from that same interview and it's so funny because as we all know oprah has a gajillion dollars Mm -hmm. and gail makes an excellent living she's been the host of um nbc's good like morning show forever like she's just she's incredibly accomplished Mm -hmm. journalist and anchor but nobody has oprah money no. So it's different. Right. And um, Oprah's rise to money happened a lot sooner than Gail's. Yes. So Oprah says, I remember once when Gail came to my house, I was already making a lot of money and she was making not a lot of money. And we discovered I had $422 in my pocket. And Gail says, 482 Oh, my God. <laughs> okay, 482 But who's counting, Gail says. They're so funny and they talk over each other constantly. Oh, my God. And Oprah says, I had $482 just sort of stuck into a coat pocket. Gail's like, in your pants pocket. You know how sometimes you find a five or a 20 and it's like, ooh, she pulls out $482. And Oprah goes, okay, you tell the story. (laughs) Gail says, in 20s. And I had gotten to Chicago on a super saver ticket, you know, back when you had to buy 30 days in advance for a decent price. She was living in Chicago and I was married and we had scrimped. I remember that once Billy and I didn't have $10 to go to the movies. He was in law school and I was the only one working. So for her to pull out $482 was like, wow. Oh my God. She goes, God, where'd this come from? You want it? And I went, oh, no, 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 I'm good. I'm fine. But I'm thinking, God, that would pay for the light bill, the phone bill, the gas bill. And she just puts it back. It's probably still in that damn pocket. She was just extending a gesture, just being nice. Oh, you want it? Oh, my God. (laughs) And Oprah says, but years later, she said, you remember that time you pulled out that $482? And Gail says, I said, I wanted that money so bad. And Oprah says, no, I needed that money so bad, but I wouldn't take it. 
you know what that's like? That is incredible for somebody like me who lives in a world where everybody wants a piece of you. I mean, people feel they deserve a piece of you. Strangers think that. Gail says, now I happily accept all gifts. (laughs) (laughs) But they kind of talk about how that's that's why their friendship makes sense and works, because Gail is just as joyful for Oprah for all of her accomplishments. Yeah. And um, doesn't ever begrudge her her success. And they made a rule at first, like she's like, just from now on, if we go out shopping and you really want something, just say it and I'll get it for you. Mm-hmm. Let's not let's not ruin our time together with like, no, you don't have to like just just let me know if there's something you really want. And she's like, and I do that with all my friends now. <laughs> nice, Oprah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> but I can understand it. Like, can we just can we just knock that part off? Right. Let's just, let's just, I have so much money. Let's just not. (laughs) And Gail's just like, I would never ask her for a bunch of stuff. Like, Mm -hmm. I just don't, that's not why we're friends. Yeah. And I think it's just cool. I like that. Uh, Life for the OG, (laughs) Oprah and Gail, is not the same as life for us normal people. No. (laughs) And maybe that's why their friendship is so magical. Or maybe it's their friendship that has made their lives magical. Oh, Oprah said something about this friendship feels otherworldly to me, like it was designed by a power and a hand greater than my own. Whatever this friendship is, it's been a very fun ride and we've taken it together. I love that. It's tender. Oh, my God. (laughs) It's so unique in the world to find somebody who speaks the same language you do in your brain. Right. And I'm sure it just they just feel golden all the time about it that they do it's wonderful oh um they're just they're such cool friends um and they've both been incredibly successful in their lives uh gail was one of time's most 100 influential people of i think 2019 yeah she not only does she have like this full-time job as an anchor but she was also the editor-in-chief of o magazine which is incredible uh, so two full last time jobs right one of them with oprah oh and people God. ask them like does does that suck do you guys argue and they were they said like we mostly agree on everything but there's like disagree and seriously disagree. <laughs> and if she disagrees, I think twice. But if Gail seriously disagrees with me, like I have to take that into account because mm-hmm. I know that she will only tell me the truth. Yeah. And I respect her so much. And I was, you guys are the best. That's amazing. Oprah's the godmother to Gail's two kids <gasps> and her new grandbaby. She's the great godmother to the new oh grandbaby. Oh, my God. And uh, they spend so much time together. They talk on the phone three or four times a day. Oh. <laughs> um, for like a week, Gail went on a vacation with her sisters and Oprah didn't have her talk with her every night before bed. Yeah. She was like, I was significantly more stressed. I've oh. never had a minute of therapy, but I talk to Gail every night before I go to sleep. And yeah. it calms me down. It helps me sleep. Oh, my God. <laughs> and it's just it's really, really lovely. Yeah. I don't want to give away my next people yet, but I saw a TikTok about how they were plutonic soulmates. Uh-huh. Um, and I think that it's probably the same of Oprah and Gail. I can like see they're it. just made for each other. Yeah. Their brains think the same way. And it's such a unique thing to find in the world. It is. 
It's so I'm just so glad they found each other. Me too. Well, maybe there wouldn't be an Oprah without a Gail. Right. And no Gail without an Oprah. And what a tremendous mm-hmm. loss that would be for uh, all of right? us. Right. What would the world be like at that point? Yeah. So we certainly wouldn't know all of Harry and Meghan's business. Absolutely not. Minimum. Exactly. <laughs> so if you ever think, like, I was just thinking about that as I was putting it all together. Like, if you think that your friendship doesn't mean anything to anybody else but you, uh, there's got it. There's an orbit around you. Mm-hmm. There's some sort of ripple. And of course, it's not as big as Oprah and Gail's. Of we course get it. not. But like, you're, you're, you're reaching out and touching lives with your relationship. And yeah. I think that's so beautiful. I think so, too. Like when you meet two drunk ladies in the bathroom and you're just like, they are best friends. <laughs> like, they are a mess. But But they they are are best best friends. friends. It makes my heart so happy. Yes. Just knowing that that's out in the world. Mm -hmm. Friendship is so good. It is. (laughs) It is. I was sitting here this week and I was like, I'm like, I just sat here and I'm like, I'm grateful for my friendship with you. Like, same. Like, I read all this and I'm like, it's all magical. I'm like, this is all magical. Yeah. Some things just feel like they were meant to be. It's true. Whatever that means. Whatever I mean, that I don't means. know what it means, but I know what it feels like. Yeah. <laughs> it's good stuff. We're working on these Christmas presents for friends and uh, this comes out after Christmas so I can talk about it. Perfect. You don't know the other part of it, but part of it is Seth had a bunch of pictures printed of us with our friends to give uh-huh. him a, a picture and a frame with it. And I was like, no, 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 no. This is the picture I want to print for Shannon. Um, and we didn't. I need to print it for you something else because he was like, it should be all of us for friends. Uh, it's just you and Brian at his roller skating birthday party. And you look so magical in that picture. Aww. And I was just like, we're because we're going through all these photos to pick the ones we wanted to print. Yeah. And I was just feeling like, this is so nice. The people that we are just privileged to know. Mm-hmm. Like this is, our life just has these other great humans in it. It's amazing. It's so great. This this person who looks like a magical, shiny rollerblader knows me and comes to my house. Oh my like, God. It's just, it's special to have friends. It is. I really like it. Me too. This is nice. Special friendship sangria holiday. Yay. Cheers, everybody. (laughs) And we really will. Friends, let's do this again sometime. (laughs) Say hi to your mom for me. Bye.